0: You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Avram and I hope you enjoy this episode. Okay, but um, but yesterday I was sitting with our granddaughter. She's four months old. When you sit with your four-month-old, it's like Shabbos. There's nothing else you can do. You, you can't use your phone. You can't read a book. Like, you're just with this baby, right? So your thought goes to all sorts of things. You know, and they're so cute, and she was in a good mood, and I, I was thinking about, you know, not that long ago in Poland, sort of some of the places that we visited. Standing at a, um, there's a there's a terrible site just outside of Tarnow. There was a, a children's action. They collected, basically, on one day, um, they gathered together thousands of the Jews of Tarnow, they tortured them in a public square. I, I think it was for, for a whole day. And then they sent them all off to No, The children, they didn't want to waste space on the cattle cars. So they murdered 800 children. And the guide is describing this to us. And you just your mind can't get around it. They took these infants and they put them in burlap bags and threw them in a the truck and threw them in a the ditch. And I'm sitting there with my great-grandfather. How did a person do that? How could a human being do so? It's beyond our comprehension. But then I was thinking even more challenging than that. So you're a parent. person is a parent. Has a baby like that. And sees that. How do you remain a human? How do you stay cognitive? How do you live a life? How is it that all... you know? Everybody talks about all these survivors and they suffered. To me... One of the most amazing things about survivors is what a significant percentage of them succeeded in building relatively normal, healthy lives. They stayed sane. How do you do And I have to imagine, I mean, I'd like to believe that I'd rise above it and I'd be a better person. I got to imagine that that, that that if I saw something like that, never mind if it was my own, there would be such a rage that would rise up in you. The need for vengeance, you know, Abba Kovner was one of the famous survivors. He was in the Vilna Ghetto. He was part of the Vilna Ghetto uprising. He escaped. He tried to convince others to go with him, and they didn't. And he eventually formed his own partisan groups. They joined up with other partisans in the forests, and he survived the war. When the war was over in 1945, he gathered together a group of about 50 individuals. I believe they were called Nakam. And they traveled across Europe, and they hunted down uh, Nazis, guards, SS officers, you know, the the guard who got into a conversation with a Jew and happened to mention what town he was from and that sort of thing. And they killed, nobody really knows, because they kept it secret, some estimate as many as 120 German Nazis. And they finally, he came to Israel, and he testified at the Eichmann trial. And I remember thinking about that when I first read about that. On the one hand, I mean, that's vigilante justice. Like if everybody takes justice into their own hands, then the world falls apart. It doesn't really matter if you're right or wrong, right? There's an union of dina de malchuta dina. On the other hand, if you were walking down the street and you saw a Nazi, you know what, never mind a Nazi, let's make it more simple halachically. If you saw a couple, there were unfortunately Jewish kapos who did horrible things. Some of them were tzaddikim, and they put their lives on the line. And some of them were ashamed. They were horrible, horrible. You know, they would do anything to stay alive. And they tortured, murdered. They were sadistic. You know, the, the, there's a tshuva that uh, River Afrayim Mashri has of a person who was a capo, And he had a beautiful voice. And they wanted to know if he's allowed to daven for the Amun. And he passed in no, he's not. Which is unbelievable. So... I, how do you deal with this question? So in this week's parsha, the parsha ends now. Remember, this is this is parshat Emor, this is Emor al-Kohanim. This is in the midst of Vayikra, Torah Kohanim, You know the service in the base Mikdash. This this week's parsha talks about all the chagim. There are two parsha in the Torah that delineate the the, the festivals, the sacrifices, right, Parshat Pinchas and Parshat Emor. And right at the end of all this, seemingly completely out of context, right? All of a sudden, we start to get the halachos of nazikin. You know, you start to get some laws of damages. And what does the Pasuk say? Right? right? If a person, it right, talks about, uh, you know, a, 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 a bizarre story of, um, of a, a person who curses God. And then in the context of that, it starts talking about what, what happens if you offend a human being. Right? If you curse God, you're going to carry your, your, your transgression. In other words, you're going to be punished. Right? But if you hit, and it means kill another person, then you're put to death. right? Now what about if you hit an animal? If you hit an animal and you cause damage to an animal, then you have to pay nefesh nafesh. So what this seems to mean is if I kill your animal, you get to kill my animal. Or you get to take my animal because I owe you an animal. What if you inflict a wound on someone else? Whatever you did, so should be done to you. Right? So if I knocked your tooth out, you should knock my tooth out. Right? A break for a break. Ain Famous pasuk, an eye for an eye. Shain touchet, shein, a tooth for a tooth. mum badam, Right, and, and 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 then when we're done with this and maybe one or two more pasukim, then the parsha ends. They take the person who cursed God, right, the son of an Egyptian woman, whatever. We won't get into Egyptian man. We won't get into it, and and they put him to death. What does this have to do with the context of our story? Why is this in Parshat Emor? What is this doing here? Right now, it's interesting. If if you could pick the logical place to find this pasuk, what's the logical place to have the law of damages that if I knock out your tooth, I owe you a tooth? Right. So that's Parshat Mishpatim. Right. Parshat Mishpatim. We've spoken about this before is the place where it gets real. Until Parshat Mishpatim, we have the book of Breshit, which is all about uh, having role models, the stories of Av. Mitzvah, like Yaakov, etc. Then we have Sefer Shmot, and that's all about uh, you know, the exodus from Egypt, and the miracles, the splitting of the sea in Har Sinai. And then the dust kind of settles. The Mishpatim And what's the purpose of all this? Okay, we got. It. this is the system. These are the halachot, these are the mitzvah, this is how you live your life. And all the nitty-gritty of halacha really starts, even though there are small sections elsewhere, in Parshat Mishpatim. And what do you find in Parshat Mishpatim? Ain tachat ayin. Shein tachat Exactly these Psukim. Yad tachat yad. Regel tachat regel. So I'm going to leave out for a moment why. We're not going to get into the differences between those two psukim, That's actually a different topic. That's where I find these psukim. So the first question is, whatever this means, why do I need it twice? And if I had it twice, I would have thought the other place would be a Dvarim. Then I could give you a whole shiur about how the laws of damages and the Moshe gives them over to the next generation. But no, it's Barsha Nemor. They just heard this. Right? I mean, this was in Harsinai. Vayikra ostensibly is the period right after they dedicated the Mishkan. Six months later, seven months later, why are we repeating this? Why are these the two places where I find this concept? Number one. Number two, let's talk about what this concept is. What is ayin tachat right? So we all know, it's a gemar and babakama, that an eye for an eye doesn't actually mean an eye for an eye. An eye for an eye means that if I take out your eye, then you owe me the value of that eye. right? So if I knock your tooth out, right, you don't actually get to take my tooth out. I owe you the value of the tooth. Now, ostensibly, there's a certain logic to this. Because if the whole issue is justice, if I knock your tooth out, the fact that you knock my tooth out, that doesn't do justice. You're still out of tooth. What's the difference that I had a tooth out of In fact, not only is that not justice, that's the antithesis of justice. That's something that's prohibited. It's the end of Hilchot Deot, right? It's called Nikama, revenge. Right? You're not allowed to take revenge. You're not allowed to bear a grudge. I actually think we recently spoke about this, right? Look at the Rambam at the end of Hilchot say, right? If you take revenge against your neighbor, right? So you're you're transgressing a biblical prohibition. You're not allowed to take revenge. Okay, so I understand that an eye, an eye for an eye is not revenge. An eye for an eye has to be that I owe you an eye, right? And the Gemara and Baba Kama Bama gets into this. There's actually a fascinating Ibn Ezra on this topic, right? The Ibn Ezra, um, on this on this him in Mishpatim, this is Perak Chafal of Pesach Chaf right, Twenty-one, twenty-four. 24 Listen to this Ibn Ezra. The fa- Ibn, Ibn Ezra's quoting Rav Sadjagon, just a little historical background. Rav Sadjagon lived in the 7th, 8th century. Um, he was uh, one of the heads of the Babylonian exile, one of the Messiams. Tremendous Torah scholar. He's actually one of the first individuals who sort of puts together um, uh, uh, literature, Svarim, on Tameya Mitzvah, understanding Mitzvah, and the and faith, right? The Videot, right? Um, so, so the, the, the Rav Sajagan lived during a very interesting period of time. During his time, there arose a new movement. Remember that the Prussian finally outlasted the Tzdukim, the Sadducees who lived in the time of the second temple of the base of Mikdash? Uh, you're talking about uh, the Greek period, yeah, 250, 300 before the common era, until about yeah, maybe 100 after the common era, like that period of time, they finally lost, right? And, and they pretty much disappear, because that whole philosophy makes no sense. It doesn't make much sense to say that the Torah is only literal, and so on and so forth. There are too much that you can't follow. So there was a guy named Anan ben David, and Anan ben David founded a sect known as the Karaim, the Karaites, right? And they basically followed, there are some differences, but I'm not scholarly enough to delineate them, but there are definitely some differences. But basically, they they took a literal perspective to the Torah, okay? And they had a dim view of Chazal, of, of Emunat Chachamim, believing in the rabbis, the, the oral tradition, and so on and so forth. So of Sajigon was the defender of the faith of his day against the Karaites. And the Ibn Ezra on this Pasuk notes one of their debates. Now this makes sense. Because the Karaites say, well, this says an eye for an eye. Now, remember that, you know, we're in the middle of Sfirat Omer, And there's a famous debate between the Prushim and the Tzdukim on Sfirat omer Because it says, right, right, You're supposed to start counting on the day after Shabbat. The the oral interpretation is that means the second day of Pesach. In this case, Pesach refers to, Shabbat refers to Pesach. But the literalists say, no, Shabbat, everywhere else means Shabbat. It means Sunday, the first Sunday of Pesach, right? Now, that's a practical difference, and there was a big debate, but let's be honest, let's say you get it wrong. Let's say you decide that Tzaduki make more sense to me, so you're counting the Omer on the wrong day. Okay, so you counted the Omer on the wrong day. But in this instance, this debate is much more dangerous if we take a literal approach to this, then i got to take your eye out. Right? If, if, if you if you cut my hand off, i gotta, I got to cut your hand off. And, and it's a mitzvah. That's what you got to do. So you can imagine that those who are fighting the Karite perspective on this were pretty vehement about this. So this is Ibn Ezra. Amr of Sajab. You can't possibly explain this verse literally. Right? Ki Let's say that I knock out a guy, I, I punch a guy in the eye, and he loses a third of his vision. Right? How could you possibly hit this guy back? How could you hit me back so that I would lose exactly a third? Either you'll hit me and I won't lose as much, so then justice wasn't done. Or God forbid you'll hit me in my eye, will come out, and then justice wasn't done either. I got more than I deserved. <laughs> right and he goes on. I'm skipping a few lines, right? So So Amarlo Ben b'adam Natembo, right? That's our Pasuk. Right? The Pasuk says if you give it, if you give, make wound a person, you have to give back what you, you have to give him back what he gave. This says, what about Shimson. Shimshon says the same line, As they did to me, so did I do to them. But you see, He doesn't do everything the Polishtim did to him. He doesn't take their wives, doesn't sleep with them, he doesn't give them to other men. He just returns them physically. So, so in other words, the Goan is saying, is that, you can't take this, little, it's not exact. But Ben Zuta, this Karite, he's not done yet. Right? By the way, the word Zuta means... Trivial, nothing. So you kinda of wonder if that was his really name real name, or they were just referring to him as like the moron. But okay. Right? hishiv Imaya Makeani show Okay, so what if a person is poor? If you're telling me, which is what the Gemara Babakama says, that an eye for an eye means I owe you the value of the eye, what if a person's poor he has no money? How's he gonna fulfill his mitzvah? So the goan answers. So what if a blind man, right, um, blinds a guy who could see? So he has no eyes to give. How is he going to give Don't You you can't. This can't make sense. At least if a person's is poor, he doesn't have money to pay for the eye. He might get money. So that's like any case where a person knows money doesn't have money. But it's ridiculous to say this is literal. A blind person wouldn't be able to pay back an eye ever. We can't possibly understand the Torah if we don't rely on Chazal. Right? If if, if we don't accept that there's an oral tradition and, and that's transmitted along with the Torah, then the entire Torah doesn't make sense. Right? Right? Just as we received a written Torah from our ancestors, we received a, a spiritual Torah. We received an oral tradition. And that oral tradition is unimpeachable. And if you don't accept it, the Torah doesn't make sense. Okay. So, tachat means monetary. Right? And that's what the Gemara says. And that's what the Mepharshim say. And Ezra Sajigah, quarter by the Ibn Ezra, points out, that makes a lot of sense. So that leaves us with an obvious question. If the Torah wants me to pay a monetary remuneration, why does it state it in this fashion? Why does it say Ain tachatayin? Why doesn't it say, if you take someone's eye out, you owe him the value of the eye? Right? And, and the value, the Gemara is very clear on this, the value is very complicated. I mean, there are five different aspects to damages, right? Nezek, Ripui, Boshet, Tzar, right? There's the actual physical damage, the monetary loss. And that's different for different people. For example, if you're a musician and you, you know, if if, God forbid somebody had taken out, I don't know, Shlomo Kabach's eyes, so he wouldn't have enjoyed life as much, but it wouldn't affect his life. He plays, he sings, he talks, right? On the other hand, if you took out uh, Da Vinci's eye and he couldn't draw, that would change his life. So there's the actual damage, the loss of the future. This is how embarrassed you are. Right? Imagine a guy rips your nose out and you can't walk out in public. There's the anguish that it causes you, and is that different for different people or is it objective? So there is a whole system of damages. And it makes sense that there's a whole system of damages. You can't possibly accurately repay unless you're talking about monetary damages. So then the question remains. So then then why does the Torah list this in such a fashion? Why does it still say, ayin tachat ayin, and it does it twice? And I'm reminding you, why does it say an eye for an eye in these two different places? Right? And maybe one last question. You can't help but contrast this need for justice, this, this halacha of repaying that which you stole, that which you took, or that which you damaged, with the inevitable um, association of vengeance. Right? If vengeance is prohibited, why does the Torah list this or put this down in such a fashion? You know? And and, and by the way, is revenge always prohibited? You know, there's a Gemara in Kedushin. Okay? Uh, actually, there's a Gemara in Megillah. The Gemara in Megillah is on Dav Chav Chetam and Aleph. And it quotes Nechunia ben Akana and Marzutra. Nechunia ben Akana and Marzutra would go to sleep at night. And before they went to sleep, they would consciously and verbally forgive anyone who had wronged them during the day, right? They wanted to know when they went to sleep that that they were good. They didn't want to hang on to vengeance. The Rambam, by the way, based on this Gemara, right, um, and based on this morning kedushin on Daflamid Bet, that says that if a person, uh, that a Talmud Chacham, a person of stature, right, you know, Rav Mochel he can forego his honor. And therefore, they would regularly sort of allow themselves, you know, to, to be offended and, and not take offense. In fact, if you think about it, at the end of Shemona right? The Gemara adds, I believe it was Rav, adds a, a little section that we usually say in a hurry and don't think about. But the words to this section, we say this every day in Shemona Asrei, Shabbos 2, right? And we don't think about it. It's a beautiful piece. Elokai nitzor like, I'm asking Hashem's help to stop my tongue from speaking badly. I don't want anything to come out of this holy vessel that, that is negative, causes offense. <speaking in Hebrew> I shouldn't gossip or slander. <speaking in Hebrew> let my my essence, let my being, be silent in the face of those who curse me. In fact, let me be like earth. Let me allow myself to be stepped on and humiliated rather than cause offense to another. And that's what Chazal used to do. And the Rambam in Hilchus Tamat it's actually very easy to find because it's the end of Hilchus Tamat in the last Allah, Allah So the Rambam says, right, Yeshua Shut Lechacham, Lindot Lechvodot, right? Um, uh, sorry, The righteous. They would hear themselves humiliated and they would not respond. Right? Not only would they not respond, they would forgive the person who abused them. It's an unbelievable halacha. Right? That you shouldn't take vengeance. But the Rambam adds something interesting, also based on the Gemara. When is this true? That the righteous choose not to allow themselves to be offended and certainly not to respond and not to and to forgive those who have... It sounds very Christian, right? When they humiliate him or embarrass him privately. Now there is a big debate what privately means, and it could be we're talking up to nine people. Something doesn't become public until there's a minion. That's also a separate discussion. But obviously it's more private if you're sitting at your dinner table at home with some guests and somebody humiliates you than if he does it out in public in shul. Right? Okay. Okay. If you, if a person, if a, if a, if a, right, these are the people who are supposed to be on a higher level. If they're embarrassed or humiliated in public, they're not allowed to renege on their honor. Right? If, if, somebody would insult if, if somebody would insult and he would then forgive the person who insulted him. He's not allowed to do that, and he would be punished. You know that story I once told you about uh, Rabbi Sol Salanter on the train. There's a similar story in the Chafetz Chaim. Somebody humiliated him, and he forgave him, and he helped him. That's because they were in private. But if the guy would have done the same thing on the platform in front of everybody, the Chafetz Chaim would have been obligated to, to to respond. Why, right? Because that's disgracing Torah. A person can reach a point where he's no longer representative of himself. He's a representative of something bigger. So we'll get back to that in a minute. So what's going on here? Why do we have this same statement of an eye for an eye in both Mishpatim and Emor, in these two very divergent contexts? Why is the language so harsh, if really what it means is monetary remuneration? And really... Why is it the language of revenge? So, the Ibn Ezra points this out, and so does the Orchayim and the Kaleiakar. The Torah is giving me this language of an eye for an eye, because even though it means that I'm supposed to pay you back for the eye that I took, I also need to understand that that's not possible. In other words, imagine a severe situation. Imagine that Bill Gates gets ticked off at you. He's annoyed at you. So he comes over to you, and he punches you in the face. And he gives you a black eye where you're entitled to damages, right? So you say to him, I'm going to sue you. And he looks at you and he says, no matter how much you sue me for, it's still going to be a minuscule amount of money. It's not going to bother me, right? Like, let's say he sues Bill, and he makes Bill pay him $5,000. The next day, Bill Gates sees him in the street. He says, you know what, I still don't like you." And he punches him again. And Bill Gates could do that every day for the rest of the guy's life. It wouldn't dent his pocketbook. So you need to remember, we need to remember, that as much as in order for society to function, this has to be a fiscal arrangement. It has to be that I'm paying the guy for his losses and his damages. I also need to remember that that does not mean that justice has been done. Right? If, you know, it's like if, if somebody slams into your car. I'm sure all of us have had this experience. Right? So it's one of the first things you teach your kids when they're driving. What happens? God forbid you get into an accident. So the first thing you do is you start taking each other details. So the guy bangs into my car, and he feels bad, and he says, you know, okay, don't worry. I I, I know I did wrong. I give you a letter. He writes you a letter. He did wrong. So he's going to pay you back. And let's say Behmet you take your car to the musach, and you get it done, and it costs a thousand dollars. And you call the guy up, and he says, no problem. I don't want to go through the insurance, and he actually sends you a thousand dollar check. And you cash the check and it goes through and you feel good. He paid me back. But he didn't really pay me back. He paid me back $1,000. He didn't pay me for the angst. He didn't pay me for the fact that I was late for work that day. He didn't pay me for the fact that I had to go to the garage. Like you wouldn't let him take your car to the garage. He didn't pay me for the fact that I had to go cash the check, see the check. In fact, it's not really possible to accurately assess. Only a Baruch Hu can accurately assess what was taken and give it back exactly. Mishpat Shilmala. We can't do that. Remember, when you do damage to someone, you are not going to really be able to fix this. The Torah will allow you to fix this on a certain level, but you will not be able to fix this. And that, by the way, leads us to two conclusions. One is that, therefore, it's not enough to pay him back. I have to beg his forgiveness. And, of course, a person only going to forgive me if he really believes that I'm sincere. If Bill Gates is saying, I'm going to do it again tomorrow, he'll never gain forgiveness. That's the purpose of the pasuk being written in that fashion. That's the first thing. And the second thing, which I think is even more important, is that as I contemplate the fact that I can never really give a person back his eye, it should cause me to realize how dangerous it is to to, to get involved in a conflict at all. I should never want to be in that situation, and I should do everything I can to avoid it. Ayin tachat ayn, an eye for an eye, is the thought a person can have when he gets in the car and is sitting behind the steering wheel that will cause him to drive a little slower. Because obviously, God forbid, if a person gets to an accident and kills someone, you can never fix that. And, and lastly, the realization that Hashem knows how to pay me back. In other words, if we believe that in the greater scheme of things, right? you know, what is Mishpat Hashem? You, know, you see certain Gemara as we quoted on last week, you know, when a person is Nikhnas labeitin, when a person nichnas ladin, when a person gets to beitin shalma, there will be a reckoning. What does a reckoning mean? It means that ultimately Hashem created a world which is meant to achieve justice. There needs to be balance. So, for all the things that we did that we didn't really fully pay back, Hashem says, "I got your back. I will administer a world of justice." So, what I really want to be doing in my life is I want to be doing an abundance of good. Imagine that somebody bangs into my car and he pays me back. But he still owes me for those things, right? But he doesn't really owe me. He owes the greater picture of tikkun olam, of fixing the world. He owes the fact that there was, was angst brought into the world because of him, and that needs to be fixed. But what if that same person banged into my car because he was delivering food to the needy? What if that person just did a tremendous mitzvah. What if that person helped an orphan? What if that person, etc., etc.? Then Hashem takes all of that into account. And in the big scope of things, I still got a credit. Right? Now, we don't fully understand. I mean, you know, we could give a sheer on what all the different commentaries say. It doesn't mean we're ever really going to fully understand this concept. Maybe when we leave this world and we begin to appreciate a world that's purely of the Spirit, maybe we'll get to figure out. I'm not 100% sure. But we're certainly not going to figure it out in this world. But the knowledge that that exists is valuable. And that brings us to the last point. Because the last point is the difference between Parshat Emor and Parshat Mishpatim. Mishpatim is all law all the time. All right? In fact, it's funny. You know, The Pasuk of Nasev and Ishma, that we will do whatever Hashem says and then we'll listen. In other words, our, our action is not predicated on our understanding. All right? That idea is in Perak Chav pusuk Pasuk 24-7, right? That's the idea that, that Hashem is always with us. That's mishpatim. Mishpatim is you got to do what's right. What's the halacha? You know, do you owe $5? Do you owe $6? You know, is there a difference between stealing and robbing? Right? How much, how many, right? Emor is a different story. Emor is the safer of Kahuna. Emor is, 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 is Is the topic that is in the context of our being a light, a Mamlechet Koanim, a kingdom of priests, a role model to the world. So Mishpatim is how much do you owe? Emor is, is this really the recipe that you want with which to live your life? Perhaps that's why this Pesach appears in both these places. Pashat Emor is you can be better than this. An eye for an eye means you can never give back what you take. So make sure you're not a taker. Make sure you're a giver. You know, and on the issue of nekama, on the issue of vengeance, which of course we've spoken about, I think the reason that it's given in the language of vengeance is because if it's my personal vengeance, right? So then that's a lack of faith, right? If I want to get him back as he hit my car, then I'm thinking that he hit my car, but he didn't hit my car. Because Baruch Hu hit my car. On the other hand, when it's not me. When it's about the Torah that I represent, when it's about Am Yisrael, that's a different story. In those instances, I actually might be obligated to seek out some sort of justice or some sort of vengeance because it's not about me. And, and, you know, sort of that's exactly what's going on in the world today. You know, first of all, that Holocaust survivor, if his anger was what he was, what and I, it goes without saying that we can't judge such people. But I think that a Holocaust survivor whose anger is all about what he lost, it's, it's focused on himself. It's very hard to climb out of that hole. Those are the people you meet. They never recovered. They never moved on. They're stuck. But then you get the survivor who says, I'm determined that the world should learn that justice will triumph. And that Nazi has to be brought to justice, not because of what he did to me, but because the honor of Hashem is at stake. Right? When an anti-Semite calls out a Jew, so if it's just about that individual Jew, he can forgo his honor and say it's not worth it. But if he's sitting on a plane and somebody does it to him, then it's the honor of the Jewish people. And that's really the honor of HaKash Baruch who That's a different story. And perhaps that that's why it's given, sort of in that language. That's a little bit of food for thought on Parshat Emo. It's a lot to digest, um, but uh, something to think about. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.